I pray this morning uh, that as we close out the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, that God would speak to you also this morning. So if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 13, we'll be reading from verses 31 down through 38. If you do not have your Bibles with you this morning, that's okay, you'll remember next Sunday. But if you don't have it with you this Sunday, there's pew Bibles in front of you, and you can open it to, um, I looked and I forgot, 900, I knew it was 900 or 600. So, 900. So you can open it to page 900 and follow along there as we get into some nitty-gritty stuff this morning. Also, on the screen behind me, I think you can follow along there. Uh, So John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, and God's inspired and errant word reads, Therefore, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. A little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also may love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Father, we just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And Lord, as we spend some time reflecting on, on what this may mean, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate this text for us. Lord, would you bring clarity to my own mind that feels quite cluttered, And I pray, Lord, that uh, your name would be made great, and that we could be encouraged by these words here this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The sobering reality. Rarely are there times throughout our life when we must deal with the sobering reality of a situation, a reality that changes our whole perspective on life, on our purpose on our goal. Fewer still are those people who can point to an event that completely reversed the course of their life. I'm not talking about getting married. I'm not talking about having a baby or a grandbaby. I'm not talking about a a new job or a new house. But the river called your life was so impacted that it started flowing in the opposite direction. Well, that's quite an introduction. I'm not sure the sermon can live up to it. But nonetheless, we will be drawing out of this passage four sobering realities. Four sobering realities. The sobering reality of God's glory. The sobering reality of God's presence. The sobering reality of God's reality. And then finally, the sobering reality of God's love, of God's love. 
But first, last week, as we left off, we left off with Judas. Um, Judas taking that piece of bread handed to him by Jesus and going out into the night. It was the unveiling of the betrayer that Jesus kept pointing to that someone amongst them was going to betray him. It was the betrayer that was amongst them that none of them even recognized. None of them even realized that he was there. None of them even guessed that it could possibly be Judas. In fact, they themselves pointed back to, to themselves and said, is it I, Lord? Is it I that you're speaking of, that you're referring to? They didn't even take themselves out of the possibility of being that betrayer. And so as Jesus took that piece of bread and gave it to Judas and their eyes met, at that point in time, it seems as though the door was closed on Judas ever coming back into the fold. It seems as though at that point in time right there, uh, what had been ordained for Judas to take place did indeed take place, and he went out into the night. And today we pick it up from there in verse 30, where Jesus says, or verse 31, where Jesus says, therefore. See, therefore is obviously just pulling forward what had just happened. So Judas went out immediately into the night. And therefore, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. This is the sobering reality of God's glory. But first, we want to define a, a couple terms, just, just two of them. And, and I, I, I've defined these before, and, and you're smart. You already know them anyways, but just to refresh our minds, um, th th there's two ways that God is glorified or that glory can be associated with God. Of course, there is the ascribed glory. That's just a glory that is reflected back, right? It's not something uh, we ascribe glory to God, right? And then there's the intrinsic glory, intrinsic just coming from within. It's the very nature. It's just who God is. Of course, who God is is His ascribed glory or His intrinsic glory. And the ascribed glory is something that we reflect back to God. The psalmist writes in Psalm 29, 1-2, Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory do His name. This is the glory that we give to God. Not that He, he needs it, but we, we just reflect it back to God. Year, years ago, um, uh, it was in the early I think he died in 1960, Donald Gray Barnhouse, is who I'm speaking of. But years ago, he, he, he was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very, a very famous church there. Uh, great, some great theologian pastors came out of that church. Um, but he delivered a message there in which he speculated about what would be the most diabolical strategy that Satan could employ against the church in the years to come, is what his sermon was about. And to the astonishment of many listeners, Barnhouse imagined that all the bars in Philadelphia would be closed. Prostitutes would no longer walk the streets, he said. Pornography would no longer be available. The streets would be clean. All the city neighborhoods would be filled with law-abiding citizens. All swearing and cursing would cease. 
children would respectfully say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Every church in town, Barnhouse added, would be packed to overflowing. There would not be one church pew that could contain one more citizen. What, you ask, could be wrong with this? Barnhouse then delivered his point, his knockout punch, if you will. And he said the deadliest, most diabolical danger would be that in each of these filled-to-capacity sanctuaries, Jesus Christ would never be preached. And if I might add, the glory of God would never be exalted. Sadly, this is all too common in far too many pulpits today. There's much religious talk. But nothing is said of the glory of God revealed in the supreme authority and saving work of Christ upon the cross. There is no mention of morality, or there is mention of morality, but no Christ. There are expressions of cultural concern and political commentary, but no Christ. There's positive thinking and inspirational stories, but no Christ. There are plenty of external trappings of Christianity but no eternal reality of the glory of God revealed in Christ. Well, I think Barnhouse could preach that same sermon today, could he not? In the past year with COVID and the political nightmare, the sobering reality has hit us square in the eyes that we can no longer dodge, and that is that we ain't in charge. We're not in control as though we would like to think and though we like to pretend that we are. And I'm not sure those same sanctuaries that Barnhouse was alluding to will ever be filled again to capacity as they were at one time, maybe in 2018 or 2019. Those positive, feel-good, self-help talks, I'm not sure that they will have the same meaning, the same draw that they did at one time. Why is that? Because the message is void of substance. The message is void of substance, right? I mean, I can go to YouTube and get all the self-help talks I want to get, can't I? I mean, I can get all this information right there. There's no, there's no need for me to come to a sanctuary to be told how I can have my best life now, right? There's no need for that. Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill as he spoke there to the Athens, and as he, he said, men of Athens, in him, in Christ, in Jesus, we live and we move and we exist. We live, we move, and we exist. We cannot even breathe without God. We cannot even breathe without God. We can do nothing we can do nothing without God first saying yes. Without God first saying yes. Our very existence is granted by God. Granted by God. That's, that's what I want to hone in on this morning. You see, just as Jesus here now in our passage here today he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. 
Up to this point, he often would refer to the time where he will be glorified, to a future time, to a future place that this was going to happen. And in John chapter 7, just for one example, in John chapter 7, verse 39, it said, For the Spirit of God, as as Jesus said, that if you would ask for a drink of water, I will give you waters, living waters. But he said, I can't give you the living waters because the waters that I'm speaking of are the Holy Spirit, which is to come For the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was not yet glorified. See, we typically only think of the glorification of Jesus as His life, but really as His death, as His burial, as His resurrection, and then ultimately His ascension to the Father where He's sitting at the right hand. That is what we call the glorification that we too hope to experience one day. Certainly as followers of Jesus, as those that are <clears throat> that name the name of Christ, and if we de- indeed are, then the Holy Spirit does indwell us. And yet we're still struggling, yet we still battle with the natural man that we have been cursed with. But the time is coming where we hope to experience this glorification that is being spoken of here. But I want to I come back to our text here this morning because um, I want to get in a little bit of a weeds this morning. So, so if we look back at our text this morning, and it says, Therefore, when Judas had gone out, and Jesus said, Now. Now. Jesus didn't say the time is coming. Jesus didn't say that I've not yet been glorified. Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man. He uses his messianic name. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Just to continue to emphasize this word now, in in, uh, John chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus says, you have grief now, right? I mean, if you experience grief, you have it now. That's what now means. It's it's quite simple, right? You have grief, you experience it now, Jesus said, but I will see you again. Now you have this grief, but the time is coming where I will see you again. And John, or Paul In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 22, Paul said, for now, in the love chapter, right? For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know. Now, not then, but now. Back to verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Jesus is glorified in what Judas did. Right? Jesus is glorified in what Judas did. This is so paradoxical to our way of thinking because often as we think about the glorification of Jesus, we automatically make this leap to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, to his ascension. Basically, the work on the cross is what we, <clears throat> what we um, attribute to the glorification only. But we fail to understand that Jesus was glorified in the very betrayal of Judas. How could Jesus be glorified by the betrayer? How could Jesus be glorified by the son of perdition that Jesus called him? We don't understand because so many of our sermons are just self-help talks. 
the books we read are all about self-help, are all about me and myself and I. When we start with I, we fail to realize we must start with Him. In Him, we exist. We move. We have our being. The very next breath we take has been granted by God. Granted by God. We must start with He. We must start with He. I I, I want to, uh, and I know I'm getting a bit heavy and getting, but once in a while we, we need to do this. So I, I want to go to Romans chapter chapter nine, um, and I just want to look at a few passages there. Um, Romans chapter nine, to help to solidify this point that I'm talking about this morning, as we think about the sobering reality of God's glory, the sobering reality of God's glory. Romans chapter nine. It's a challenging chapter, and so obviously I'm, I'm, <laughs> we'll get there in, in a year or two when we're finished with John and we go to Romans, but, but I just want to look at a couple verses here. And um, where to start? Um, Romans chapter, chapter 9, it says, for um, as Paul is laying the foundation the, the, uh, of what his, 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 um, his point is here this morning, he says in verse 15, for an example, for he says to Moses, right? He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's what he tells Moses. A couple verses down in verse 17. For the Scripture says, Paul says, to Pharaoh, Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I rose you up. For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I rose you up to demonstrate my power in you. Why? That my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Throughout the whole earth. Jumping ahead to verse 20 to where I really want to go. Verse 20, it says, who are you? Oh, man, who are you? A woman who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath to make His power known, endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared before, beforehand for, 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 for glory. So, what am I saying? Well, as we think about God being glorified, in Judas, God being glorified in Judas. See, I, 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 uh, I have wrestled with this passage and some of these thoughts for quite some time. And quite some time ago, I have surrendered to honorable or common use. Does not matter to me. As long as this lump of clay brings glory to God, 
I breathe, I exist, I have my being, I live at the pleasure of God. However he chooses to make this lump of clay, however he chooses to glorify his name through my life, so be it. So be it. Take my life and let it be consecrated all to thee. It's a song we sing. We can ascribe glory to God, reflect back to God, but glory is intrinsic to God. Glory is who God is. Who God is. Now. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. We wrestle. We wrestle with Judas. We need not. We need not. Well, I mean, that's heavy. But we must keep moving. But we must understand the sobering reality of God's glory. It's intrinsic to God. I'm not doing God any favors by saying I need to glorify God. It's what I reflect back to Him. God doesn't need me to receive glory. Glory is who God is. Who God is. We live, we move, we exist for His pleasure. For His pleasure. The second sobering reality that I want to draw from our text here this morning is the sobering reality of God's presence. The sobering reality of God's presence. As we move on. The sobering reality of God's presence in verse 33 starts out with little children. Verse 36, I mean, yeah, verse 33. uh, Little children, I am with you a while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Well, he starts out with with my little children. And for us in our English, we could say, my dear children. Right? It's a term of, of endearment. It's John, first John uses it seven times. Paul uses it one time when he's speaking to the church at Galatia and he calls them his little children. My dear children. Right? It's a deep sense of love, a deep sense of responsibility, weightiness that is felt there, the responsibility that we ourselves have to raise up our children, to set the course and direction for their life, good, bad, or ugly. We feel the weightiness because it's us. It's part of, they're part of us, right? I mean, this is, and we say, my dear children at times, right? We get to this point that it's just like, oh, my dear children. You will seek me, he says. What he said in John chapter 7, 34, he told the Jews, you will seek me, but you won't find me. Where I'm going, you cannot even come. A couple of verses later, a couple of chapters later, actually, Jesus adds to that, says the same thing and adds to it, and you will die in your sins. Now he's speaking to those who are not his dear children. But to us, to these that are his dear children, we'll get there next week in chapter 14. But he says this. I mean, listen to these words of comfort. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. 
right? I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Verse 33, he says, you cannot come. He says, verse, where I'm going, you cannot come. This is a journey for the moment that Jesus must walk alone. They cannot come to his trial. They cannot come to his scourging. They cannot come to his humiliation. They cannot come to his crucifixion. It is a journey that Christ must walk alone. Must walk alone. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from my people there was no man with me. This is a journey that Jesus must walk alone. But then in verse 36, verse 36 to 37a, says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going, Jesus? Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me. Switches from come to follow. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow later. Peter said, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? Right now. It's as though Jesus didn't even hear what Jesus just got done saying in verses 33 to 34. So we're going to skip them also and come back to those two verses at the end. It's just like Jesus, Peter didn't even hear those two verses. All he heard is, Jesus, you're leaving and I can't come. Why can't I come right now? Where are you going? Why can't I come? I mean, two very appropriate questions, are they not? Ones that we ourselves may have. I mean, here we are. We've, we've been together for three whole years, and all of a sudden you're leaving, and you're saying, I can't come with no other explanations? Why can't I come? Where are you going? It's a fair question. They're fair questions. But this is where the reality of God, this is where we must look at the sobering reality of God. And we'll pick that where we ended up, we'll pick that up a little bit later, but we must first now transition to the sobering reality of God's reality. Verse 37, Peter says, why can't I follow? Why can't I come? Peter adds, I will lay down my life for you. And this is the sobering reality of God's reality because Jesus says, really, Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? No, 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 Peter. No, actually, you won't. You'll have the opportunity, but you won't. You'll deny me. In fact, you won't just deny me one time before that rooster ever crows. You're going to deny me three, three times. It's the reality of God's reality. As much as Peter didn't even know himself, but he had good intentions, he, he thought this time would never come. He had no idea what was ahead of him. He had no idea what the future had in store for him. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, when you turn back, strengthen the brothers. Strengthen the brothers. Jesus knew Peter. Peter did not know. 
But Jesus was praying for Peter. Jesus was preparing Peter for this moment, for this time that was, con- that was going to absolutely change the course of his life. In John chapter 21, in John chapter 21, where after the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus had ascended, hadn't ascended to heaven yet, but before he ascended to heaven, but, but he was gone from them, and they all went back to fishing. If you remember, that's kind of a humorous part of the story we'll get to, but they kind of said, oh, we're just going to go fishing again. And, and so there they are fishing. They seen Jesus coming down the beach, and Jesus had breakfast by the sea, we often call it. At that time, they had breakfast by the sea, and we had this exchange between God and Jesus and Peter. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I, I love you, Lord. He asked him again, Peter, do you, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. He asked him again the third time, right? You're familiar with this story. He asked him again the third time, Peter, do you love me? Now Simon says what? Peter says what? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will guide you. Someone else will clothe you. Someone else will take you where you do not want to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death that he was going to glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me, follow me. Now Peter can follow Jesus. And Peter does indeed follow Jesus. Peter will follow Jesus, but not until his work on this earth is done. And in the case of Peter, he too will die. He too will be crucified, though before his crucifixion story, history would tell us that he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified as Jesus was crucified. And he was crucified upside down. Upside down. It's a sobering reality of God's reality. I think Peter kind of got that by the breakfast on the sea where he realized that although the intentions that he had, the desire and the passions, the love that he had for Jesus, yet he himself did not know the future. But I think he got to the point where he realized that his very life, his very existence is at the hands of God. And he surrendered to that. And that brings us then to these two verses we skipped over, the sobering reality of God's love. The sobering reality of God's love. See, it was only these disciples. I'll read them before you again to put them before you. But 34 says, a new commandment I give to you. It's not really a, a new commandment, though it's just understood differently now because now the Holy Spirit is given. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also may love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, only these disciples of Jesus knew this love that Jesus was speaking of, and yet had much to learn of this love after Jesus returned to the Father. Jesus, or just as Jesus loves all people, so too are the disciples to love all people. But 34 and 35 is speaking of a love which can only be understood within the band of brothers. Can only be understood at this time within that band of, of 11. 
John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God does indeed love the whole world, the whole earth, love everything within it, but there's a special love. There's a love that's not understood by all that only only God's children can understand. And in John 13.1, He said, Having loved His own who were in the world, Jesus says He loved them to the end. He loved them to an end that lasted, that, that endured to, to the end. We are to love everyone also. We are to love even our enemies. But there is a special love we are to have for our fellow followers of Jesus. Right? Chrysostom said it like this, speaking of this love. He said, love is a greater sign than miracles. Love is a greater sign than miracles. In fact, I, I might add my own commentary to that and say that to be able to love some people, maybe love me, it does take a miracle, huh? Love is a greater sign than miracles. Passing over the miracles that they were to perform, he makes love the distinguishing mark of his followers. Miracles do not attract unbelievers as much as the way you live. Your life attracts unbelievers. And nothing brings about a proper life as much as love, Chrysostom says. And so I wonder, as we think about so many thoughts in these few verses, but we had to bring them all here today because we got to move on to the 14th chapter. But, but I wonder, I wonder as those who from the outside look within our churches, within the people of our churches and look at our own individual lives, what do they say? What do they hear? What do they see? We hear what they say, don't we? We hear what they say. We hear what they say, and they say what they see, and they hear what we say, but they see what we do. One person put it like this, whenever the beginning of the new life from God is found in man, this love in its beginning is also found. It is not nature. It is not natural, which brings this about. Even the best orthodoxy, even the best teachings cannot now take the place of this essential feature. They who are born of God bear a mystery within them which unites them most intimately in one body, a mystery which no one knows but they themselves. But the power of this mystery appears unto the stranger. It is not a kind of fraternal union with prideful and hostile exclusions of those who are without. For love widens the heart to love even these with a love that belongs, but that believes all things and hopes all things. And hopes all things. So I think. I think this kind of love that Jesus is speaking about here, that those on the outside of the world looking in can see and know that we're followers of Jesus, begins with the sobering reality of God's glory, knowing that we exist, that we move, that we have our very being. We are who we are. We breathe that we breathe. We're living yet today at His pleasure. And we realize that we're all just lumps of clay, aren't we? Right? I mean, we're all just lumps of clay made by one potter. 
And he designed us, he molded us for a specific purpose. And we glorify God in all that we do. Not who we want to be, not who we aspire to be, but who we currently are in what we do. In what we do. So I'm not sure how to land that plane. I kind of run out of steam. <laughs> but may we just take those words with us and know that they know that we're followers of Jesus. How we, how we talk about each other. Not the things that we say. Not the good spiritual things that we know how to say. But how we treat each other. How we act. It's been very convicting to me this week. And I pray that, that you too could hear something from God this morning in these words. Lord, I thank you this morning for this time and this space and once again knowing the reality that I exist for your pleasure. Father, forgive me the times where, where I think you might have made a mistake. Forgive me the times where I think I need to give you some advice on how you should treat me how you should mold and shape my life. And instead, Lord, would you just once again reshape, remold, resurrender this lump of clay to honor and glorify you no matter what my life looks like. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.